Everybody, Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Today on the show, we've got Alex Buckles. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of a cool company called Forecastable, which helps people do helps people sell uh, in partnership with other vendors to deepen traction, penetration, integration with large customers, and hopefully extend customer lifetime value. Partner-based co-selling is the way of the world these days, and Alex walks us through it. He's also the co-founder of Pathways uh, to Autism, which is a way uh, for people with autism to productively enter the workforce and and lead, uh, hopefully, long and satisfying professional careers. So great person, great human being, uh, and um, a lot of it really interesting insights. Before we hear from Alex, let's hear from a word from our sponsors, and then we'll hear from my conversation with Alex Buckles. This episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast is brought to you by Outreach. Outreach is the first and only engagement and intelligence platform built by revenue innovators for revenue innovators. Outreach allows you to commit to accurate sales forecasting, replace manual process with real-time guidance, and unlock actionable customer intelligence that guides you and your team to win more often. Traditional tools don't work in a hybrid sales world. Find out why. Outreach is the right solution at click.outreach.io forward slash 30 MPC. That is click.outreach.io forward slash 30 MPC. This episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast is sponsored by Pavilion. Pavilion is the key to getting more out of your career. Our private membership connects you with a network of thousands of like-minded peers and resources where you can tap into dozens of classes and training through Pavilion University. Make sure you take advantage of the Pavilion for Teams corporate membership and enroll your entire go-to-market team in one of our industry-leading schools and courses, including Marketing School, Sales School, Sales Development School, and Revenue Operations School. Unlock your professional potential and your team's professional potential with a Pavilion membership. Get started today at joinpavilion.com. Once again, that's joinpavilion.com. This episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast is brought to you by Freshworks. Have you ever been in a digital sales room? Well, if you haven't, your sales team should be in one soon. Gartner, in its latest report, predicts that by 2025, 50% of all enterprise B2B sales technology implementations will include digital sales rooms. Create an immersive digital sales environment with Fresh Sales. With Fresh Sales, you can develop digital customer journey maps, integrate advanced digital commerce capabilities into B2B sales, create unified experiences across touch points, and enable visibility for your sales and marketing teams. See how thousands of businesses use Fresh Sales to shorten sales cycle and improve sales conversions faster. Get a free trial of Fresh Sales at freshworks.com slash fresh sales. Get a free trial again of fresh sales at freshworks.com forward slash fresh sales. Hey everybody, it's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Today on the show, we've got Alex Buckles. Alex is the CEO and co-founder at Forecastable and the founder at Pathways for Autism. After serving in the Marines, he spent 17 years in various enterprise revenue roles with a heavy focus on enterprise sales and has sold two companies along the way. After Forecastable, Alex plans on spending the rest of his life focused on building a scalable global infrastructure, enabling every individual with autism to be activated in the workforce and to live as financially independently as possible. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sam. Glad to be here. 
we're excited to have you. So um, we like to start with your baseball card. And really part of that is just giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the company that you're CEO of, Forecastable. So in your words, what does is, what is Forecastable do? Sure. So Forecastable uh, is a SaaS platform that enables sales reps to more effectively co-sell with their partner ecosystem. And uh, that's not what we always did. We weren't always in the co-selling business. Uh, for the first, you know, my, my background is in enterprise sales. And really for the first four years of this company, uh, we were focused on helping enterprise sales reps, you know, systematically win really big deals. And uh, that started out by uh, enabling them to uh, to build buyer maps, which are really org charts or visual representations of the buying committee that they're selling to, where they can visually indicate kind of who's in their corner as a supporter, who's not in their corner as an opponent, where you've got executive alignment and power and influence and authority. Uh, and then you kind of marry that with a closed plan or a mutual success plan. Um, and then, you know, you want to be able to you know, have that strategy and that plan and also work with your internal collaborators because there are lots of people that get involved with an enterprise deal. SDRs, AEs, technical engineers, legal, finance, just lots of people that touch a deal. Um, and so that's what we were focused on. And, and once that net deal do close, once that net new deal closed, uh, we then transition that to customer success. So that buyer map turns into a customer map where the, the, the CSM can now visually indicate kind of who's happy and who's not, where we've got executive alignment. Uh, and then you can kind of better upsell, cross-sell more effectively uh, with that kind of infrastructure in place. Uh, and then instead of having a closed plan, you have a customer success plan where you kind of document the milestones that need to be achieved throughout the life of the contract. Um, so that was really the first four years of our business. And then, uh, you know, while we were building that, I was also, you know, running a revenue organization at another company. Uh, we sold that company last year. Uh, and then I had planned on bringing Forecastable to market in January 1st of this year. Uh, that That is not what happened because... Uh, uh, around October, November of last year, I saw that uh, there was a $76 million capital raise led by Andreessen Horowitz in the partner co-selling space with a company called Crossbeam, uh, who's now a partner of ours. Uh, and then, of course, a few months later, one of their competitors, Reveal, another great partner of ours, uh, they ended up raising $54 million uh, led by Insight Partners. And uh, so I kind of took notice and said, there's obviously a lot of attention uh, in this partner co-selling space, especially in partner tech, uh, which is an emerging category. So we, we needed to, to capitalize on that. So we kind of said, hey, stop the presses. We're not going to market on January 1st. Let's go take all these wonderful enterprise sales best practices we've built already, and let's bring that to the co-sell motion. Uh, so we spent the last year you know, heavily investing in product to serve that market. Uh, we launched in September, so just 60 days ago. Um, and now you know, our primary sales motion is focused on helping sales teams more effectively co-sell with partners. So it has been a wild ride uh, over the last 60 days. And primarily because it's, you know, uh, 100% of large enterprise B2B organizations have this co-selling, par- uh, you know, this co-selling problem uh, and our pipelines reflecting that. And so with this you know, economic downturn looming, um, CROs are, are looking for you know lower customer acquisition costs, higher net revenue retention, a lifetime value, and Forecastable delivers all of that in droves, even if they're already running the most premium sales tech stack. So they could be running Salesforce, HubSpot, Gong, Clary, Outreach, ZoomInfo, doesn't matter. Um, and so for me, whether you want to take more control over your direct sales and success motions, or you want to nail your partner co-selling strategy, we're absolutely the horse to ride. So what what exactly does Forecastable do? How does that work from a from a practical perspective in terms of like enabling co-selling motions? Sure. So um, the, the core of the product is the buyer mapping. So again, you're just working an enterprise deal. You want to visually map that org out. Um, and But in a co-sell motion, especially if you're bringing like three or four vendors to the mix, which is really common in, in large enterprise cycles, 
Um, everybody, every individual rep tends to be inwardly focused. Uh, even if they happen to be a really buttoned up rep and they happen to have a closed plan or a mutual success, success plan in place, it is very focused on their deal. Uh, and so, you know, uh, if I'm looking at, you know, those three or four vendors in the deal, I guarantee you we've got three or four different close dates in CRM. We've got three or different, uh, three or four different next steps, you know, outlined. We've got uh, three different opinions on who's who in the zoo and where there's power and influence and authority. And so for us, it's really taking all of those co-selling partners and giving them a single pane of glass to operate from that same foundational deal information, regardless of what CRM they're running in the background. That makes a lot of sense. So walk us through, well, first let's dive into your background a little bit. And then I want to spend some time talking about, you know, this, the rise of co-selling and the rise of sort of partner ecosystems, but tell us your origin story. How, how did you, how did, you know, we, I read you a little bit about your bio, you, you've done some enterprise sales, but it starts in the Marines, if I'm not mistaken, walk us through a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I did, I did join the Marine Corps and after the Marine, after, after the Marines, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I ended up working at Radio Shack selling cell phones. Uh, and uh, I got really good at that. I ended up uh, going to a sprint store where I sold a lot more cell phones. Uh, and little, little did I know back then I was learning upsell cross sell strategy and great objection handling, all that good stuff that, that has served me well throughout my career. But, uh, I ended up getting my first opportunity through family. My father was a CEO of a software company. I had had no idea what he did at the time. Um, I was just a kid and uh, he gave me my very first uh, sales job, professional sales job as an enterprise rep, you know, sole sole sales rep for the company uh, for six years. And uh, so I kind of learned, learned a lot from that experience and, and wearing a lot of hats in that experience, you know, having to build the website, you know, sometimes manage customer support, sometimes work with the product team. Uh, So that really kind of helped me, uh, helped me get into that startup world and learn how to go build a business like that. Uh, when I departed there, uh, that's when I got into true enterprise selling. I, I ended up uh, getting into the SAP ecosystem and subsequently the Adobe ecosystem, uh, where I co-sold uh, really effectively, but not in a traditional manner. Uh, I didn't go through my partner org. Um, there wasn't like a bunch of training or courses on how to co-sell effectively. What I did learn early on, though, was that in order for me to get the attention of, let's say, the SAP reps, I needed to have a really compelling story, a quota retirement story that enabled them to make money. Otherwise, they just they're not going to care about me. Right. Uh, and so I just figured out how to make that happen by myself in the field. Um, and, and that's and that's really where, where where I learned enterprise sales and co-selling. Now, along the way, um, I did have another startup. So we started an insure tech company. We spent three and a half years uh, building that myself and my co-founders, uh, two of both co-founders came with me to forecastable as well. Um, that was a wild ride. We learned a lot, built an amazing product, ended up in litigation, uh, spent every penny I had, every penny I didn't have trying to get out of that. We managed to get out of it. And then, well, hold on, I'm going to interrupt you. What, what was the litigation? What happened? Former employer, former employer stuff, you know, uh, just, just, you know, dealing with, with non-competes and things like that. And, uh, you know, we, we ended up getting through it. We had the freedom to continue building our business, which was our only goal. Um, and uh, and, we, and we got that freedom. Uh, and then one of my co-founders lost it. And it was just like, this is why, I, you know, pick who your co-founders are really important to a startup. And so select them wisely. Um, and so at that at that point, I, you know, I had no money left. I didn't have the energy. You know, I had three kids in diapers. You know, my wife divorced me during that first startup. It wasn't a fun ride. but <laughs> doesn't uh, sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of awful. But uh, anyway, um, you know, that's when after that startup, uh, you know, after we failed in, the, in that startup, I kind of, you know, recovered, went to Adobe, did exceptionally well there. And when I was at Adobe, I quickly realized there was Marketo at the time so prior to the Adobe acquisition. Um, I, you know, I realized that there was not a lot of process around enterprise selling. And 
Um, and so I, I had started, you know, building, you know, these these org charts kind of manually without, you know, our, without the forecastable technology. And I started training other sales reps on how to do these same things. Uh, and they still couldn't do it with the existing tech that was that was out there because it was too hard and took too long. And that's when I went back to my other co-founders that, from the prior startup, minus that one, uh, and uh, and said, hey, you know, let's go do something again. And here we are five years later. So how does I mean, first, amazing story. When you say you're one of your co-founders lost it, meaning like he just flipped out or or had a breakdown or. I had, you know, we try to be flexible with people. He had wanted to go live that that life out in Silicon Valley. And, you know, we all had day jobs uh, and and we we kind of said, you know, he wanted to go get a day job out there. We said, OK, um, you know, he went out there and kind of disappeared on us for like six months and then got, you know, decided he, you know, he said, hey, it's really common for people to live out in, you know, in RVs out here. Uh, it's apparently his RV parking at Google and all this, you know, he, he bought into that whole hype and, uh, and, but he couldn't buy into it like a normal person. He went and bought a decommissioned ambulance and was like living in that with his dog, uh, making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but still living in, in something weird. It was just a weird situation, kind of hijacked the code and <laughs> that was it. Francis McDormand won an Oscar for Nomadland. It sounds like it was a similar situation. Um, He'd win some kind of prize. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Well, so, so, I think what you're saying is is really interesting. You know, one of the theses, right, that you have is that is that sort of traditional outbound and traditional sales motions are are broken. Walk us through your perspective on that and why now is the time for kind of partner-based selling strategies and ecosystems. Sure, I do think that the direct selling model or the, that traditional direct outbound sales motion is breaking as we speak. And so I remember when I was in that SAP services partner um, and I, my COO came to me, handed me this book called Predictable Revenue. And he's like, hey, read this, build a strategy around it. Um, that's kind of what we did. And I feel like that's the that's the kind of the motion that everyone's been running since. Um, and let's just hire more SDRs. Let's get more SDR training out there. Let's just do a, a whole ton of outbound and things like that. But if, if the SaaS industry itself is going to quadruple over the next five years in, in size, I know my inbox is already filled. I don't already, I already don't answer my cell phone if I don't have your number saved. It's like, and now you're going to forex the number of SDRs that are outbounding. It's just not a model that that's sustainable. And, and as you look at why partnerships is becoming, you know, is, is at the forefront right now. And that, that movement is starting right now um, is, is because it's not just inbound or outbound anymore. There's something called nearbound and um, reveal, I think came up, came up with nearbound and started kind of evangelizing that phrase uh, and it's really you want to bank or, or build on the trust that your partners already have with customer accounts that you want to get into. So if I'm trying to go to sell to Coca-Cola, am I going to go make a thousand cold calls into random people that don't know what I do and I, and I have to kind of break my way in? Or, you know, am I going to go to a partner that already has a customer relationship with Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola or any stakeholder, any company, they already have a set of trusted relationships. And those relationships are, are with vendors they already do business with. So they've already vetted that vendor. They already have that existing relationship. They've hopefully got trust built up. And when that, if that vendor were to go to that stakeholder and say, hey, look, you know, I saw this thing called this. We're partnered with this company called For Forecastable. I know you're having this one pain point over here. Mind if I make an introduction? That is a, a that warm introduction will get you much further, uh, you know, much faster than any type of cold outbound motion. And that's the direction that the industry is heading right now. So what is it? What's in it for the uh, the vendor with the trusted relationship? And how do you how do you build the right kind of relationship so that you can get that warm introduction as a small, you know, as forecastable, a small company that wants to broaden its relationships? What's the strategy for building out that ecosystem so that you can be the beneficiary of those warm introductions? 
Well, let's start out with maybe uh, let's talk about large vendors. So you've got like an SAP or a HubSpot that has a big partner ecosystem. And we know that let's say I'm deploying an ERP solution like SAP um, and, you know, somebody is a $20 million transaction. That customer is not going to be buying more SAP for another three to five years. Uh, and in that three to five year period, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Right. Um, and that, that can increase you know, the likelihood of churn. And so if you systematically say, OK, well, what, what type of customer is this and which who in our partner ecosystem in terms of tech partners or ISVs, um, what, who can like integrate and add value to this customer so we can, you know, that we, so we can introduce them to our partner ecosystem. They can make those purchases. Those integrations now happen. So now we have multiple hooks into SAP. So when you fast forward you know, three to five years and that SAP customer is coming up for renewal, they are really, you know, less likely to churn because they've now got all these other technologies built around the SAP product. So for a large, what we call, you know, super node or, or for the sun, all those partners kind of revolve around that sun. Um, and it's really up to that, to that large, you know, SaaS company to get as many hooks as possible in there to reduce churn. That's the focus primarily. How do, what's a, and for those that don't know, what's an ISV? Uh, independent software vendor. So, so fair enough. So you've got these suns, as you call them, like these, these super nodes, like you've got SAP. It's still probably difficult for a small company to get inroads into SAP to be recommended as uh, a new software partner. Is there any, any ways that you do that? Or is it just sort of keep trying until, until you hit payload or something? No, there are, there are lots of ways to do that. Uh, So I say scenario number one, you want to focus on you know, what is your better together story and what, you know, what quantifiable, you know, metrics, you know, are you impacting for SAP, let's say, as an example. And so uh, if you know that that if, if SAP is aware that if you're involved and you reduce churn and customers are happy, like that storyline in and of itself will get you into the customer success organization, maybe not sales if it doesn't impact net new, uh, but that'll get you in through the CS organization and get you, a, you know, a lot of business uh, kind of right out of the gate. Um, if you're a services company, let's say, and I, I run this play, you know, in, in services companies as well, um, we used to, you know, we, we especially in managed services operations where you're kind of engaging with that customer on a regular basis and your success may Im- directly impact the success of your SaaS partner. Because if you fail, then they may assume that, oh, the tech might be bad, too, and then they may churn. Uh, but at the same time, you can also be very proactive with that relationship. So my last services company, what we did was I told the sales team, I said, hey, we need to get a bunch of business in from our from our, our SaaS partner. Um, so what I want you to do is I want you to go to each AE at our SaaS partner, Enterprise AE. I want you to ask them what their top 10 net new accounts are for the year. Let's go build buyer maps for these top 10 accounts. And then I want you to book one hour meetings with, with each of those AEs and walk them through what it is you uncovered in the account, what your strategy would be to get both our services and their technology in there. And, and just for the fact of, of, of doing that, uh, we got a, a lot of business from, from, from those AEs. We had over 80 enterprise account executives engaged with us inside of a single quarter. We also use that same strategy with customer success. Again, uh, and as a managed services provider, uh, you can go into your, your working and existing customer relationship, and we would make sure we would keep not only the, the SaaS company sales team, but their customer success team apprised of you know, new stakeholders, new initiatives, uh, problems in the account, you know, uh, things like that. And that just earned us a lot of credibility with our partner and, and in turn, a lot of business. What, um, what, what, how long does this take? You know, if you're a CEO listening to this, you're like, all right, I, I believe you. I want to, I want to get going on partner-based selling and, and, uh, you know, revamp my, my overall go-to-market motion. How long should I be thinking about, you know, how long it takes and what are some of the common pitfalls that people make or mistakes people make when they try to build out a partner selling strategy? 
Sure. Um, so when it comes to how long it takes, um, I, we always recommend crawl, walk, run. Uh, that's what we always recommend right out of the gate. You know, pick a couple of partners where you've got a really strong go-to-market story or, or that really strong better together story and decide, you know, what, what are you trying to impact? Are you trying to impact net new? Are you trying to impact churn, which obviously takes longer to, to realize the results of that? Um, but you can, you know, get started, frankly, a week. Uh, if you want to get started and say, look, I'm going to pick one partner. We're going after this set of 200 accounts. We've already got our better together story. We have a very systematic process that that they can follow to say, OK, let's put together. You know, here's you know, what does a good deal look like? Which stakeholders should be involved? So we know what a, a good buyer map looks like. Uh, what is your co-sell plan? And a co-sell plan is nothing more than a closed plan, mutual success plan just between multiple partners. Because and again, like we said before, that was those are typically inwardly focused. And so now we're taking everybody's individual uh, closed plans and merging them into one, you know, one, what we call a co-sell plan. Um, and so that, that's really the process for getting up and running. So you can test it out with just one partner with a couple hundred accounts and, and, and see what happens and kind of scale it from there. And we've got processes for that. In terms of pitfalls, pitfalls happen when you stop following the plan. Um, when, when folks deviate from the plan, and of course, there's times when there are necessary deviations and things like that. But if you stop following the plan or you're not you know, actively engaged the way you should be. That's really where it falls apart. But the good, the good news about it now is, you know, these coastal motions are already happening in the field and they're already falling apart every day. The only difference is most people don't know why they're falling apart. At least now with our technology in place, you know, we can pinpoint with absolute accuracy exactly where the deal fell apart and whom was responsible. What's the number one reason deals fall apart? The number one reason deals fall apart. Oh, there's so many reasons a deal could fall apart. Anything can happen on any given deal. <laughs> uh, I would, you know, the number one reason for deals falling apart is really preparedness. I, I would say, you know, it, it, in any scenario, if the deal is winnable, meaning like you can't, you can't help it if 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 somebody's product is serving the customer's needs better than ours. Like if we just flat out get beat product wise, or for some other reason, like that, that's stuff that reps can't really control. Um, you can kind of sell around that and dance around that, and you might get lucky, but. Um, in general, if it is a winnable deal and like you're sitting in the deal, like, yeah, we should win this from a feature function perspective, from from whatever, then it's just process from there. It's making sure that you understand who every stakeholder is. And I think missing stakeholders is is, you know, identifying missing stakeholders because missing stakeholders can can kill deals, um, misjudging what a stakeholder's interests are, because every single individual stakeholder in the buying committee has their own selfish, self-centered reasons why they want to choose one vendor or another it could be professional, it could be personal, it could be all these things. And it's up to you as the sales rep to go figure out what those individual interests are and cater to them. And if you follow the plan and the process and you cater to each stakeholder's needs, um, you will win that deal. It's a, it's a great point. Last question I have uh, on this topic, Alex, before we sort of talk about your influences and get inspired, uh, because I know you're doing so much more than just working on Forecastable. But one of the things that you've said is that, you know, the next decade will be dominated by partnering ecosystem buying behavior. And there's going to be a second shift where buyers will start taking control of the entire evaluation process. Just explain that a little bit, because I think that's a pretty seismic perspective. And I think you're probably right on a lot of the merits. So walk us through your 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 thesis there and, and tell us why it's so important. Sure. Um, so, you know, the next decade is going to be dominated by the partner ecosystem buying behavior. That's all coming out through analysts. And that's how we, we just see that happening in the field, especially, as I said before, with the economic downturn, people are looking for that lower customer acquisition cost. And that's partnerships are delivering that. And so over the next 10 years, like, you know, over the last 10 years, it was marketing automation that kind of dominated things and CRM the decade before that. This is the decade of ecosystems. 
but like you said, I also strongly believe that that uh, there's also going to be a, a major shift in the middle of this decade around transitioning from a seller centric selling process to a buyer centric process. You know, you can look at stats from Gardner right now that say that that already a third of buyers desire a seller free experience. And that number jumps to 44 percent, um, you know, for millennials. Right. And those are quickly becoming our decision makers uh, in, in in cycles. And so. Um, it's no longer, it's going to transition from, it's no longer a sales cycle. It's really the buyer cycle. Buyers, uh, there's so much technology that, that is available for a buyer to purchase. They need to be much smarter about how they go about their evaluation process. What's happening today is you get SDR that might reach out to somebody or build a relationship and that buyer might, might, you know, that might be their first introduction to that category of technology, right? And they get all excited. Yeah, this solves my problem. And then they might look into one other company or they just might buy directly from that company who, who you know, reached them first. And that's a mistake. The second you realize that you have a problem and you all of a sudden feel that urge to go make a purchase right out of the gate, it's like you should stop yourself and say, who else in this space is, is, is solving this problem? What are my real requirements? What are the evaluation considerations for every stakeholder that might be involved in this decision? And let's make this a really, you know, formal, objective buying process. And we're going to invite multiple vendors to the table um, to conduct the evaluation and answer our questions and things like that. Very similar to RFP, but a little bit more dynamic than that. Not as rigid. And, um, but um, that's the direction that, that things are going. Buyers will completely control cycles and sales reps will be more in the business of guiding and gathering information than, than really working deals like they traditionally do today. Yeah. I think I'm, I think we're probably like uh, close to the same perspective, but you know, one of the things that strikes me when I'm thinking about this is, you know, you say, okay, X percent of buyers, they prefer a seller free experience, but I wonder is a seller free that I might prefer fast food, but, um, but health, but you know, good food or salads might be better for me in the long run. And maybe it takes somebody to educate me on that fact. There might be true that they might prefer not to talk to a salesperson, but it also might be true that close rates might decline significantly if we give them everything that they want, because maybe they, maybe they don't know as much about how to actually purchase software as they think they do. And as a consequence of that, like they might have a preference for something that's actually suboptimal to their interests. I wholeheartedly agree with that as well. Um, and, and sellers add a lot of value. And a lot of people maybe, I think the reason why most buyers desire a seller-free experience, because nobody wants to be sold to. They get afraid when they get that pressure from a sales rep. A lot of them do, so they back down. Um, but at the end of the day, that sales rep, if you have a great sales rep that's doing their job properly, they're adding tremendous value. They're introducing you to folks to answer questions that you may have from credible you know, credible folks in, in the space. Um, and, and I think more seasoned buyers will value that experience over a seller free experience. Yeah, exactly. Alex, we're, it's been great chatting with you. We're almost at the end of our time together. One of the things, the last things we like to do is pay it forward a little bit and hear about organizations, ideas, books, content, anything you think we should know about that's had a big influence on you that you think might inspire us or just help give us some new or interesting ideas and, and let us look at the world in a different way. When I frame it like that, what do you want to tell us about? I would latch on to looking at the world in a different way. Um, and the and I'm going to recommend more of a consultant than anything. Uh, and uh, his name is Simon Bowen. And you can visit him at modelsmethod.com. 
you know, I think that Simon Bone has developed pretty much I, I, what I consider the most advanced method of selling or communicating value that I've ever experienced uh, in my entire in my entire career. And it's frankly changed the way that I sell permanently. So for those that know me, you, you may know that I pull out my iPad all the time and I draw things and I do all my webinars from my iPad. I do most a lot of demos from my iPad. Uh, I learned how to uh, really articulate value propositions through uh, drawing and diagrams and visual frameworks uh, through Simon Bowen. And I, I spent probably 15 to 20 hours a week over a three month period going through his course and content and working with him to hone in on those skills, uh, which involves a lot of deep thinking, uh, both about your product service and the value that you're delivering to customers. And then when you combine that with, um, you know, leveraging, you know, and, and using frame visual frameworks, it's just it's a different way of selling. And if you pick up that skill, it will serve you for the rest of your career. I love that. I'm going to reach out to Simon Bowen. Maybe he can teach something for Pavilion. We'll see. Without a doubt. <laughs> uh, Alex, it's been great chatting with you. If, uh, if folks want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch? Uh, you can reach out to me uh, directly by email at AJB at forecastable.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn, LinkedIn uh, slash LinkedIn.com slash in slash Alex Buckles. Awesome. Alex, uh, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you on Friday for Kind Folks Finish Fridays. Sounds great. Thanks, Sam. Hey, everybody. Sam Jacobs, Sam's Corner. Love that conversation with Alex Buckles. He's become a good friend of mine, actually. He's a member of our CEO pavilion. Uh, and so we, we actually just spent a week together in Ireland, uh, going all over the country, visiting Sastock, that great conference, and also doing cool stuff like climbing up a 3,000-year-old fort on the western coast, off the western coast in the Aran Islands. But, um, but what did we talk about? We talked about these, this idea, you know, and there's always going to be people that have a vested interest in sort of pursuing the world is, the world is ending, this, this thing is ending, this thing is just beginning kind of talk track. But there does seem to be some merit to what Alex is saying that the direct outbound sales motion of just hiring tons and tons of SDRs and just pummeling, <laughs> pummeling people's inboxes, pummeling their, their cell phones, pummeling their LinkedIn uh, inboxes. There's a limit to that. There's a limit to that. And there's got to be a different way if technology can help us to go to market in a more effective, efficient way, then that's probably what's going to what's gonna win over time because it's just cheaper. Because hiring lots and lots of SDRs, and of course, as I'm sure you, some of the folks listening are SDRs and some of the folks were SDRs, and we all know the problem with SDRs is that uh, you know you spend three to six months ramping. You're good at your job for three to six months and, you, and you're immediately quitting or want to get promoted, want to become an account executive. And so the the return on investment is really a much longer thing about just having people in the company if you can continue to create upward mobility for them. But the actual act of generating meetings, the, the productivity associated with that is not great. It's not great. And so there has to be, or, or there's pressure, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. There's pressure to invent new kinds of go-to-market strategies. And partner co-selling is one of them. That's not necessarily new, but it's it's effective. I learned a lot about this in Ireland, actually. and Because I just thought partnerships was like, hey, if you sell my product, I'll give you 20%. And, and a lot of time that's a problem because the company doesn't really need the 20%. What they need is their reps to hit quota selling their product. And I didn't realize that there's all of these reasons why people might want to bring in another software company into a relationship that extend far beyond revenue share, primarily related to churn reduction, which is that the more integrated, the, the harder it is to rip out a complicated set of workflows, products, and solutions, the more likely they are to renew. The re, and, and so 
it's not even that you need the 20% because the math shows up in your in your LTV. It shows up in churn reduction, which extends the lifetime of the customer, which pays for itself many times over and much more than a one-time 20% payment. So, and even then, you know, there's there's partners in the HubSpot ecosystem that still make, you know, that still make lots and lots of money uh, for having referred a HubSpot. We talked to Brian Halligan from, from HubSpot a while ago and he confirmed that. So there's just a lot of interesting ideas circling around this partnership concept. It's not just rev share. It really is about where is there one plus one equals three? Where is it that if you use a, a recruiting firm plus pavilion, and, and so you can purchase not just the act of hiring a sales team, but you can actually, with the purchasing of the sales team, hiring the sales team and paying those recruiting fees, maybe you actually purchase credits so that they can be trained and developed through Pavilion University. That's obviously an example near and dear to my heart. But I think there's a lot of interesting ways that two companies can deliver a better solution than just each company on their own. And that's certainly what Alex is, is uh, promulgating. So I thought it was a great conversation. Uh, let's We'll hear a final word from our sponsors. But if you do want to reach out to me, you can. Sam at joinpavilion.com. As of today, I'm recording this in the early November. And I would say, you know, find me on LinkedIn, but I'm locked out of my LinkedIn account right now for reasons that are hard to fathom. Too many profile views is what they said. I, meaning other people are looking at my profile. <laughs> I can't control that. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, algorithms, right? Can't, 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 uh, can't live with them. Can't shoot them, as they say. All right. I'll talk to you next time.